This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That McCoist there and what a joker he is what a personality he's got was he difficult to manage um, or was he just a joy to manage with his personality no he was a joy to manage they were all I mean I never found anyone and there I say it difficult you know there was some that you had to keep your eye on <laughs> but McCoist was very good to have about the dressing room very good to have on the training pitch and I didn't take him to the World Cup and uh, to France in the World Cup and you know it's with hindsight it's a big regret I made a big mistake not taking him uh, and I met him I didn't phone him I didn't text him I met him and I met Stuart McCall at Parkland's Leisure Centre in Glasgow asked to meet them and I met them and I told them before I announced the squad that neither was getting picked now they were heartbroken McCoy he was only I wouldn't say he was tearful but he was you know he could tell he was very upset, and I said, "Look, Dally, I can't justify it because you've not played. You've hardly played for uh, Rangers all season. Uh, you've had a calf injury, and you haven't scored many goals. I can't remember very few goals compared with his normal. And it was the injury thing that was hanging over him. And I said, if I take you, it's an old pal's act, and I don't want to be an, uh, take a team that you know just take my pals or the guys I like." I'll have to take. No, I did make a mistake. I should have taken them. He, he pleaded with me. He said, you know, I'll always score. You played Norway. I'll always score against the Scandinavian opposition, <laughs> he said. But I regret not taking Alan McCoyst and Stuart McCall. But, the, you know, you look back. And I don't have many regrets about my team time with the Scotland uh, team. But that is one major regret that I didn't take. And even if he was on the bench, he would have been very good from in the dressing room and they would my course is what I call a cheer substitute you know you get subs that are you know there's a indifferent response from the fans you know some even get a boost <laughs> with the fans <laughs> what are you doing warming up but when McCoy went to warm up at any time I had him there was an immediate cheer the crowd was lifted and I should have known to include him and put him on the bench and even send them out for a warm-up to cheer the place up. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's an oversimplification. But, you know, I think with hindsight, he would have been a good addition. But to his great credit, he was heartbroken. But to his great credit, he did commentary for ITV, I think. He never once criticised me. And I had a chance, particularly in the World Cup, when they were beaten by Morocco, he could have gone on and slaughtered me, uh, but he was always very supportive. He's that kind of guy. But to, you know, some others who were feeling they should have been picked and well might have been critical if they were doing media work. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was not that way at all. If we go on now to the World Cup '98 in France, um, before we go on to that Brazil game as such, the game itself, um, Craig Burley obviously is very high profile in America on ESPN and. 
he regularly talks you up on his programme, Craig, and he always brings up the story of the Kilts um, and that being your idea for, for the opening game. Could you tell me that a wee bit about that story? Uh, well, I, 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 I'm surprised to hear he always talks me up because I was thinking he was always criticising me. You know, or people tell me that, you know, because, uh, you know, I used to be quite hard on him uh, and he wanted to play central midfield and uh, I played him wide and the right quite a lot and sometimes even played him at fullback. And he said, I was playing a year at Celtic, I was playing a year at Derby County and I was a central midfield player. I said, well, I'm telling you this right to your face. You can't get a game in central midfield. <laughs> I said, because my I picked the team, and my opinion is that McAllister and Collins are better midfield players than you. Now, it's harsh to say that to a guy, but when the guys won, and I mean, what annoyed me occasionally was I was reading the paper. Uh, Burnley says, you know, and of course I would say to him, uh, did you say... Are you saying that I'm playing you at a position or that you're not going to play at uh, full-back? Because he was a brilliant wing-back uh, down that right-hand side. He was absolutely outstanding. In fact, he played there in, in uh, the World Cup and he had more shots and goal than some of the forwards from the full-back position. But he was also a very good central midfield player, there's no question. But uh, to get the best uh, use of your players, you look at the squad you've got and you try to use... Time got all your good players in the team. Now, he was one of the good players, one of the best players, so we want him in the team. But you also want Collins, you want McAllister in your team as well. And so, therefore, you fit them in where, not necessarily in their favoured position, but a position that they, you know they can do well and that will keep your best players in the squad. So, uh, that was, you know, Craig Burnley, uh, is, uh, I know he's. Uh, is doing very well in the commentary in the USA. He was a very, very good uh, midfield player and a very, very good wing back. We had him uh, playing at the back or a right back, and uh, he certainly had intelligence. He had aggression and he, he struck the ball beautifully. So uh, you know, it's hard to to pick a team when you've got an abundance of riches in the one position. You know, now the present Scotland manager's got, he's got Richie's at a left-back position. When Tierney's fit and Robertson's fit, he's got a real problem there. He's got two two of his best players for the same position. Well, I had the same with Burley. But, but he wasn't all that delighted when I said, no, you're not playing in the heart of midfield. You're playing <laughs> <laughs> at full-back because we haven't got a right-back as good as you. And we've got midfield players that I think are better than you. Now, that's harsh, but... They, they've got to respect your decision and respect you for telling the truth, as you see it anyway. So uh, that's why Burnley was not playing in the heart of midfield all the time. In terms of the story about obviously the opening game of the World Cup, such a such a massive game for any World Cup. And I know it's changed now that it's the hosts, but you were playing Brazil and you decided to wear kilts. Obviously, going into the stadium, um, as I say, Craig's mentioned that a few times. What was the story behind that? Yeah. Well, that made, that made took a great trick, that. Uh, both the Brazil fans and the Scotland fans, whenever they saw it now, uh, we were given outfits from the SFA, Blazing Flannels, very smart outfit, no question. But the, we had a wee discussion with the lads one night, and it was an informal thing. It was a team meeting. We were just 
talking before we left Scotland, we were going to America to have a 10 days preparation before we went to the World Cup. And I don't know, it came up in conversation that one of the lads knew a kilt manufacturer in Glasgow and with no bad idea to go in the kilt. Somebody said, I don't know, I'm not taking the credit for saying it, but I'm taking the credit for latching onto it and saying, <laughs> that, by the way, that would be a great idea. Uh, we'll do that. And uh, and I said to him, if you want, even if we're to buy the kilt, but you see, having already been bought blazers and flannels, I don't think... Uh, uh, the SFA were going to be happy if we were asking them to buy a kilt but the kilt manufacturer was approached by, with a very good uh, commercial guy the commercial manager working with the team he's quite a big reputation in England he's well known, Paul Stratford mm-hmm. you know, and I think he's Wayne, Wayne Rooney's he's agent yeah. Paul Stratford spoke to one or two of the players with a small committee of commercial group who were uh, we had a player pool of uh, appearances and things like that. People were paying you for a team photograph and for individual photos and to go and do presentations and things and uh, everything, and even including the captain and the manager, everything was put into the pot. You know, I, I was getting offered money to do this interview and that interview, and I said, yeah, that goes into the player pool. And it gets divided at the end of the day by 30 because you have 22 players and you've eight staff. So everything that was earned, now the, the kilt manufacturer gave every player, every member of staff, a kilt outfit, complete outfit, and put money into the player pool. Oh, that's brilliant. And uh, that was a fantastic gesture from them. And they, all they wanted was a photo of the team in the kilt, which was easy to get, and also that the players would wear their kilt going to the match each match so when they went to the Stade de France for the first game in the kill the place was amazed you know the, the Scottish fans were really taken aback and the, the, even the Brazilian fans were cheering the Scottish team wearing the kill so that was a good bit of initiative from the, the players and it was taken on by the commercial guy Paul Sefford and he did the deal I mean, I said, don't be hard to deal with. We're only too happy to wear the kilt, Paul. And if you, if, you, if you lose that, we'll never forgive you by asking too much money. No, he, he didn't. So we were very fortunate to get a kilt outfit each. And uh, my son's still wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, it looked terrific, I think, even if I say it myself. And the other thing that I'm very proud of in that uh, opening game was this. You know, I knew the Brazilians held hands when they were out. It does take too long on your podcast to tell you why, but uh, if you if you want me to, I could. I know, of course, they that's held fine. Hands, that was a, sorry? That's fine, honestly. I'm you not pushed for time at all. That's absolutely fine. Well, I don't want to <laughs> to bore you, to, but but the, the, the one game they lost in the qualifying, there's the, the 10 teams in South America... And they have to play the qualifying group to, to get the teams that are going to the World Cup. Well, they lost to Bolivia. Now, Bolivia is the highest altitude in South America. Yep. They were beaten up there and they were ashamed. And when Bolivia came down to play them in Rio, the turn game, each game they played home and away, the two fixtures. And when they came to Rio, 
Dunga was the captain. He was going round shaking hands with him in the dressing room. And Carlos Alberto Pereira was the manager, and Carlos saw Dunga, and he was holding him tightly. Come on, come on, we've got to do it, we've got to do it. And he's encouraging him. And Carlos said, why don't you just... And the guys were shaking hands with each other. They come on, we've got to beat them. They beat us in Bolivia, we've got to beat them here. And it ended up, everybody shaking hands, and, he, and Carlos Alberto Pereira, the, the, the coach, said, why don't we all just hold, keep holding hands and go like that? And they went out in Rio for the qualifying game, holding hands, and they won 5-1. And they felt that was a superstition. <laughs> but our boys, uh, when we were ready to go out to play them, and I looked out, I never ever let the Scottish team out first. Always, we don't wait at them, they wait at us. So let them go out and wait at us. And I always did that with my teams, whether it was a club team or a national team. So the, the, Brazil, I was looking to see them get out before we went out. The referee said, out you get, out you get. I said, no, just a minute, ref. And I saw them coming along the corner holding hands. So I went back into our dressing room. I said, look, look guys, I've just seen them. They're setting themselves. They're holding hands. <laughs> they're worried. Because the boys, because I liked the boys, they had a laugh at that. And I, I always see the end of the players talk about it. He said, I remember you saying that. Brazil are setting themselves. They're playing Scotland. <laughs> and they're so worried. They're holding hands. But... I, I was so proud. When you see any picture of the lineup there, the anthem lineup, and if you look at it, every player's singing, uh, and we had some language, we had to teach them the words at times, <laughs> and every player's jersey's tucked inside his shorts, and he's stocking her up, and they turn around, the turnover is the same, and he's, they were immaculate. And I had this thing about, and they were immaculate when they went out onto the pitch in the kilt before the game. They were immaculate when they went out with a strip on. And they were all ex- exactly the same. And they were singing the anthem. And you see it, it sometimes gets replayed that uh, start of that game. And, it's, you know, you're proud. I've got a couple of sons, you know, and both of them say to me, you were so worried about how they dressed and how they behaved and they're looking smart. Was it no better if they, you were so in- insistent on winning the game? <laughs> 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 they say it would be better if we won the game, no matter how they looked. But as I always say there's certain things you can control and there's some things you can't control. You can control the way they look, you can control their behaviour, you can control their dress, but you can't control a victory. You can do your best, but you can't guarantee it. But you can guarantee if you're going to play with Scotland, you don't put tape around your sockings. And Stephen Nichol put tape around, I remember in Mexico, or, no, it was a game back with Andy, he put tape around his socks. And I said, Stevie, that's unacceptable, that tape. And he says, well, we get, we've got red socks at Liverpool. We get doing that at Liverpool. I said, Stevie, this is not a pub team Liverpool you're playing for. This is Scotland. <laughs> and if you put a wee bit joke into it, you get a better response. So we were insistent on standards of everything, you know, timekeeping, behaviour, uh, dress, and... Uh, I think the evidence is there to prove that uh, they did respond very, very well. In that game, we'll now come on to the game itself. And I know earlier on you said you were never phased by opposition, but when you look back now, as I am at the moment, you've got players, you've got Cafu, Roberto, Carlos, Dunga, the captain, Giovanni, Rivaldo, Ronaldo, Bebeto. You just look at those and there's plenty on the bench you could name as well. Were you not phased even a bit going into that game, Craig? 
Well, there was one. There was one that worried me, and I do admit it. it I wasn't afraid, but there was one when I was concerned about was Ronaldo, the striker, the big Ronaldo boy. Absolutely. And I was so much concerned about him. I phoned Bobby Robson, and Bobby was his manager in uh, Holland when he played for uh, PSV, wasn't it? Uh, aye, PSV. Bobby was the manager, and I phoned him and I said, Bobby, can you? Spare me a minute. And I was quite friendly with Boy. And he said, yeah, certainly. I said, Ronaldo, how would you, if you're playing against him? And he said to me, he's the best striker I have ever had. He said, I've had a few. He says, in teams. And I've had Lineker. And I've had, what do you call the German boy? The manager of Tottenham. I've had Karek. I've had the top striker. I've had Romario. And, and, you know, I've had the wonderful strikers, but by a mile, he is better. Ronaldo's better than them all. And he said, he's the best in the world that I've experienced. And I said, well, do we man-mark him? No. He said, yeah, we'll roll round the mark-up, no problem. Don't man-mark him. Oh. I said, do we put two men on him then? One on him and one behind? No. He said, the only way, you'll never stop him, the only way to eliminate him in a game stop the supply to him. So he says, you should analyse uh, Brazil, look at some tapes, go and see them, and watch where he receives the ball and make sure he doesn't get the ball. <laughs> he says, because he gets it. From a standing start, he's the fastest player I've ever known. He's the strongest player I've ever known. He says, he'll murder you. And he says, you must stop the supply to him. So I analysed nine Brazil games in which he played and we found that most of the passage came from the uh, Cafu at right back. So in that game, we marked Cafu. And it was Christian Daly, I think. I said, Put, pushed him up on Cafu from the wide wing back. But I said, now if Cafu gets one pass down the middle into Ronaldo, you'll be substituted. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if he passes it up the line, that's okay. Or if it, or it kicks it a long ball anywhere. But if he's allowed to pass a ball in, to the feet of Ronaldo. I said, that's your job, is to prevent that. You'll be sitting on the bench with me. And, uh, you know, he knew I was uh, half-joking the whole earnest, but... Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't phased by any player, but I was aware, I was very wary of some players. You know, I always felt if you played opposition, you, you, if you... I used to say to them, you know, if you're fighting Indians, you kill the chief. So you look at the chief and the, the opposition, you know, the chief and... Finland was Lippmann the chief in Latvia was Pahars, you know, the chief in maybe Yugoslavia was Savicevic or Savicevic. So you would, you would man-mark them. We were playing Italy, I used to man-mark Del Piero. Uh, didn't help us to be right enough, but it helped us to be a bit more successful than otherwise would have been. So we didn't man-mark Ronaldo. We man-marked the supplier and it went pretty well in the, in the game he was very subdued although they managed to beat us 2-1 When they scored the goal five minutes in are you thinking as a coach at the side especially the quality they've got oh no here we go Yes I did I thought oh no what's happening here we're really up against it but great credit to, you know the lads battled away and I've looked at the tape of the game and it was quite even actually, you know, and uh, we got a good, uh, the penalty was soft, but we, I think it technically was a penalty. 
and uh, Colin scored it very well. But the one thing about te- I would like to tell you about that uh, uh, France World Cup was our last game was um, against uh, Morocco. And they were the African champions, don't forget. And that's a, quite an accolade to be the champion team of Africa. And I, I, I don't fall out with people, but I disagreed with Archie McPherson. And I think Archie's a wonderful journalist and a wonderful commentator. But when he wrote his book, he interviewed me for the book and uh, I told him that I'm speaking to him the way I'm speaking to you. And But he didn't ask me much about Morocco, but he, he said that... Uh, uh, in the final game, the World of Scotland were humiliated by Morocco. <laughs> that incensed me when I read that. <laughs> I just spoke to him. I said, I phoned him and I said, Archie, in what way were we humiliated? Well, you've been 3 nothing. I said, yeah. Well, where was the humiliation? I said, have you seen the stats for the game? Now, stats don't tell you everything. But if you look at the statistics in the game, and I've got a copy of them, and I can even email them to you, I've got a copy of them. And, and we had more possession. We had more shots in goal. We had more corner kicks. We had fewer free kicks. We had fewer... Everything except we had a red card. Uh, and that was Burley. And it was daft. It was a tackle from behind. So all this... Everything in the game, if you look at the statistics, as they're reported, was in our favour. Except they scored three goals. And I, I think... Unbelievably, very surprisingly, uh, Jim Layton, I think, could have been responsible for the first one, which was normally a save for Jim. And Jim has a wonderful record of uh, 91 caps and 45 clean sheets, which is sensational, that record he's got. But uh, I think he slipped uh, a goal against Morocco. And and the last goal we got, we were down to 10 men with an attacking player on, and they broke away and got a third goal when, it, when in actual fact, I thought we had a, still got a chance until Craig Burley got sent off. Uh, but we were not in any way, I was, I was sitting as a manager of the team, we were not humiliated and I, I didn't like actually writing that. Uh, and I tried to prove, I don't know how you, how you uh, uh, the dictionary definition of humiliated, but I don't know what it is, but I would never have called that game a humiliation. If you look at the game and you take the goals out of it and you half shut your eyes, we were every much as uh, in the game as uh, Morocco. In fact, we had more of the game than Morocco. Uh, and still we lost, though, and you can't hide from that. You can say we were hammered in the scoreline, but not a humiliation in play. As you say, um, I think, as you've, you've pointed out there, I think a lot of the time... Maybe not so much now because of social media and maybe we're aware of football across the world more than we were maybe 20, 30 years ago. But there is there was a misconception at times that, as you've just said there, teams from Africa or teams from maybe parts of South America that weren't the most heard of or the players won't, weren't widely recognised. Sometimes they were dismissed when, as you've said rightfully, there's a lot of quality out there. And just because they're not heavyweight European names, they're still get technically right. superb players. I mean, if, if we'd been playing the South Africa or, or the Nigeria and we'd lost, it wouldn't have been such an embarrassment, such a disgrace with Morocco. Now, Morocco's got 35 million people and they are football mad. So I 
think we've got to acknowledge the fact that uh, you know South South uh, uh, African football is good, and the level's good. The Ghana, the Nigerias, these countries uh, can always give you a really hard game, and uh, well, Morocco were the champion team at that time, so. You know, it was a, t- a difficult fight, son, but it's not one that we should have been uh, worried about. In terms of obviously qualifying for Euro 96 and the World Cup in 98, it's remarkable we've not qualified since, and I will come on to that, Craig, but I'd like to next talk about the Euro 2000 qualifying campaign. You obviously resigned shortly afterwards, having not progressed, but when you look back at that, you were in a group with Czech Republic, Bosnia, Lithuania, Estonia and the Faroe Islands. Now, you could say the Faroe Islands and Estonia... Maybe not the most high-profile teams, but that Czech Republic team, they won every game in qualifying. Just how tough were they to play against? Yeah, well, they were exceptionally good. There's no doubt about that. We actually, I thought we uh, did quite well against them in in both games, you know, and uh, we were always competitive. But you're you're absolutely right now. Uh, My memory's not uh, lucid enough to... uh, to be able to remember the whole team, but I remember that they had good quality in their in their uh, side and the record uh, before we we got them in the group was exceptional. And you know, Czech Republic has always been a very very formidable team. So I've got to say that uh, you know it wasn't. A, I didn't think it was a, a disgrace that we didn't manage to to qualify. But it was a major disappointment to me after two uh, successive qualifications. It was a major disappointment to fail. And, you know, when I felt it was, I was like kind of ashamed. Well, not kind of, I was ashamed that we had failed to qualify. And I thought, this is the time to go. And I did. Uh, I resigned because, uh, you know, well, we got out of the group in three of the qualifications out of four. That I had, uh, although we lost in the playoff, uh, we managed to get out of the group, yeah. which was, I think, a good achievement. Well, when you think back now, it, it was a good achievement because we haven't managed to do it since. Uh, and I don't think there's any, there should be any shame in failing as we did because it was very narrow. We were always competitive. And we were taking uh, the group, the the groups went to the death the last two groups where we we got to a playoff with England and then we failed to qualify and I don't think we should be in any way embarrassed because of that No, absolutely not and what do you remember from those two games? Obviously Paul Scholes gets a double at Hamden which is disappointing but again some people probably forget we go down to Wembley and through Don Hutchison we win the game at Wembley albeit not enough to qualify but as you say, it wasn't as if we were humiliated. We gave it a right good go and we were within a whisker of getting there. Yeah, well, I think uh, I've got to say the Wembley game is, is quite memorable for a number of reasons. And the man we scored uh, at Wembley, uh, the, the, an equaliser, and it was, uh, it was scored by Don Hutchison. And I always go back and give credit to the man that took the B team for me. When I had, we had a B international against Wales, and we were playing a full international at the same time, and I looked around for a manager to take the B team, 
and I took a guy that you know, everybody loves and knows. I took uh, Tommy Burns. Oh, what a man! To manage the beating, right? Now, when Tommy came back after the uh, the game, and I said, "Any players, Tommy?" He says, "There is a player you've got to put into your team." Craig. I said, "Who's that?" He says, "Hodges." And I says, "Listen, Tom." We've got abundance of midfield players. He says, I, I had him in midfield at the start of the game against Wales under a B team. He says, and we were subbing a wee bit, and I thought, I'll stick him up front. And he says, I stopped uh, Don Hutchison up front, and he was magnificent up front. He held the ball up. He won it in the air. He's got enough pace to go on a through ball. He, he strikes the ball brilliantly. He says, if ever, I, if ever I saw a striker play in a position, it's uh, Don Hutchison. Now, had Tommy Burns not told me that, and had I not the greatest respect ever for Tommy Burns, I would never have dreamt of paying Hodgson up front. So when we lost 2 nothing to England at, uh, at uh, Hamden, we were going down to Wembley, and I thought England changed their team there. There's two centre-halves for tough guys, Adams and Cohen. And uh, the managers, uh, we... Uh, Kevin Keegan. Kevin decided that uh, he was going to play a footballer. He's winning 2 nothing. We'll, we'll play them at football down at Wembley. We'll outplay them. So he put Southgate in at centre-half. Now, I knew Southgate, in comparison to, uh, to Cohen, was soft. So I put and Tommy Burns' recommendation right from the start. I put Hutchison up front. And I said, every long clearance from the goalkeeper, I think Sullivan was in the goal, I said, every clearance put in top of Southgate, and I said to <laughs> Hudson, you abuse him, you know, batter him. And he, he did, he, he battered and he crashed into him. And, and, you know, when it was declining football, he held it up, he played well. And of course, as is well known, he headed a fine goal laid on by, by McCann, Neil McCann. So I've got to give great credit to. Uh, Tommy Burns, you know, he took the B team and the B team, of course, is a way to discover players for the first team. And when I asked him, he said, it's a must that you put in the uh, Hodges up front. The other uh, interesting thing that Hodgson did was maybe my two best results over the years with the national team were two away victories. And one was that one in England when we beat England at Wembley. And the other one was we, we beat Germany in Germany. Uh, went over to play them in, uh, I think it was Bremen in Germany. And we beat the German national team and Hutchison scored the goal again. So Hutchison <laughs> scored the winner against Germany when we won uh, over there and he scored the winner against England when we won in England. And again, you know, I, I, I sadly passed away uh, Tommy, but uh, I'm, I'll be eternally grateful to Tommy for the advice that he gave me, uh, the information. Uh, so uh, to, we played well at Wembley, but we couldn't get the second goal. And Seaman had a wonderful save from Christian Daly's header, and that prevented us getting a, a, an equaliser. And I think had we got that, we'd have gone on to win that game because we were totally on top of England. And I, I had two, the best player in the park, I think, when England had top-class midfield players, you know, like uh, 
Schools and Ince and these guys, uh, the best player in the park was young Barry Ferguson, who controlled the game down at Wembley, and he was only 20 or 21 uh, at the at that time. So, you know, I'm quite proud of that performance and uh, the fact that we won, but very, very disappointed that we didn't manage to get another goal. I'm interested to make, talk more a wee bit about Tommy Burns there. You must have some great stories about Tommy because he's just, there's, no matter when it, if you mention Tommy Burns to anybody, everyone's always just got such lovely words to say about him. What a legend of the game. Correct. Yeah, well, he had and he was very good. We used to have a sing song at times. And uh, Tommy, uh, Tommy uh, uh, and my we used to say, right, it's a clapometer here. We're going <laughs> to give you a song each. And uh, he did the rap, I think it was. Tommy Burns, and and he was brilliant. <laughs> you know, he could have been on the stage singing it, uh, and so and and you know, great cheers. So we we if we were having a wee team meeting at night and a wee bit of fun in the hotel before a game, we would get him to sing, and uh, he was brilliant. And and at Celtic Park, I don't know if they have it any longer, but they had annually they had the the alternative Burns supper. Yep. And it was they did it at this time of the year, which is Burns time. And it was the the Burns supper it was the Tommy Burns supper. <laughs> and I was privileged once I was asked to go and speak at it. And uh, it was a bit of an honour to be asked to do and go and speak at the Tommy Burns supper. So I did try and recall some stories of Tommy. Uh, and of course, tell them something about the other Burns. Uh, not so famous Burns, Rabbit Burns. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in terms of leaving Scotland, obviously, before we took, obviously you said that disappointing not to qualify for, for Euro 2000 and you left, but I must say, I think, as you talked about Craig Burley there, sometimes can be quite critical, but the way Craig obviously, I think, has been speaking about you in the last couple of years on ESPN, and I think a lot of fans are now, Craig, is you don't really appreciate what you had until it's gone, and we've not qualified since 98 under yourself, so I think with hindsight, you're getting a lot more credit for the amazing job you did with Scotland um, now than you maybe should you should have got it at the time, but you're definitely getting it now, which I think is, is definitely deserved because you qualify for two tournaments in the bounce and at the moment, obviously, hopefully we get there this summer, but it doesn't seem like we're going to get two in the bounce and can be confident about saying we're going to qualify for two in the bounce um, anytime soon. No, I, 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 people say you're the last man to... Uh, which a major tournament. Nobody says you were at five major tournaments in Scotland. Well, now, I wasn't. I wasn't the manager, but I was. I was on the staff at five Scotland in, in a twelve-year period from um, nineteen eighty-six to ninety-eight. That's twelve years. We were at five tournaments, right? Two European Championships and three World Cups, and I was at them all. Now nobody says that, but that's the fact. I was on the staff with Alec Ferguson and Andy Roxburgh, and I was in charge in uh, two of them now. Yeah. Well, the, we've only ever, Scotland's only ever qualified for two European Championships. Now, I think there have been 17. I mean, I think that's horrendous, that we've only qualified twice. And it was two school teachers that qualified us, you know, <laughs> and you weren't supposed to be a football guy if you were a school teacher, and that was Andy Roxburgh and myself. Yeah. We, Andy qualified for Sweden 92, and I qualified for Euro 96. And these were the only two European Championships Scotland's ever been at. 
And, I, and people are unaware of that, I think. It's quite an amazing uh, and a shocking statistic. Uh, we've been at, uh, I was at three World Cups and I was lucky. I was at Mexico where I was assistant to Andy in Italy in 1990 and I the team in 1998. So, you know, that was a, a halcyon period of football for Scotland, in my opinion, anyway, from the Two full seasons 
over in the League Cup than they'd ever been. Uh, uh, we sold. The unfortunate thing was, I think we underachieved at Preston because we had a good team, and I feel we should have done a bit better. But we had to sell our best player, Sean Gregan, was when I went. He, I was told he was going, and then we signed Fuller, uh, a couple of Fuller from the Hearts, and he, he was a magnificent striker, and uh, that. I left because I fell out with uh, the, the official from there because I was told the, on a uh, on a Friday, I think it was a Friday night game we were playing on the Friday at lunchtime, you're not to play fuller. I said, why not? They were, were selling them. They didn't ask me if they could sell them or give me time to get a replacement. They just told me they were selling them. And we were doing well in the league at the time, so I, I took exception to that. I said, if I'm the manager, you may have asked me. And so we actually played Sheffield United that night, and the crowd was busy, it was packed, but uh, we lost 1 nothing. You know, if, and the, the, the back at the town end at Preston's terrific, and it's full of Jamaican flags because they loved Fuller. And of course, I had to say to Fuller, I trained the team in the morning and I shaped them up, Fuller was in it. And then at one time, when I was told that. Uh, you're not allowed to play him in case he gets injured. We're getting 1.2 million from Harry Redknapp for him, and that was just, that was the uh, and I, I took exception to that and uh, said, look, I'm either the manager, I'm not, and I fell out. <laughs> I don't follow with people. But I, I t- took exception to the chairman there, and uh, the next game we lost one nothing. We were actually fourth in the league when we played the Sheffield United, and it was, it was start of the season went down to ninth. And then we lost one nothing the next game, away from home, and we were down to 12, which is halfway in the league. And at that point, I said to the chairman, he, he, he took the half and he didn't speak to me because we lost. And uh, I said to him, I went out of here. Well, at that time, I was quite elderly. <laughs> so uh, he, said, he said, I'm not saying it's saying yes, well, I wasn't saying. He said, I'm not, and asked the, the vice chairman, the young chap, and he said to me, he'll not sack you. I said, well, I'm not staying, I'm not working for him. He sells a player behind my back, and then doesn't he speak to you because you lose one nothing. You know, so anyway, that, but Preston, to cut a long story short, Preston was a fabulous football club. I loved it there, and Billy Davis took the team we had that season when I left, a lone volition. Billy took them to the playoff final. Uh, they lost it but he got there uh, and uh, it tells you the quality of team that we had and two great guys were in the team called Graham Alexander who played for Scotland yep. and Chris Lochetti the big centre half these two guys went to be the manager and assistant manager of Fleetwood Town later and they invited me down to be the director of football at uh, Fleetwood so my friendship and, and I think the relationship I had with the, the Preston boys was very good from the, the captain and the Scotland right back. They wanted me to join them uh, later when they got into management. So, sorry, I've got a long-winded uh, explanation about Preston. Uh, I've always got a soft spot for Preston and I'm delighted to see Alec Mills doing so well at Preston. Absolutely. And from Preston... Um... In terms of the game, it wasn't until a few years later you, you seemed to come back in a more high-profile role and 
for a brief spell, you held Billy Davis um, at Derby County. What was that role as a sort of consultant like? Well, that, that was a great role. That was like, that's the best job in football. He's not quite a job. That title is football consultant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you don't get the blame when you lose. You know, <laughs> now it's it's really director of football, but no manager really likes a director of football because they think they're being directed, and managers don't like to feel being directed. So I, they, they had a problem with the director of football role at Derby and the chairman system at Bikini. It's, it's a tainted name down here. There was a bit of irregularity, and I think we to sack him because uh, the newspapers got in their story about irregularities. So he says, We want you. And Billy uh, is keen for you to come here. I said, I'm happy to come. But I just, I was really a director of football, but they called it a football consultant, which was a smashing job. And uh, we, we won promotion to the Premier League. And uh, we get into the Premier League, and, and Derby was a super, another super club. And in between times, or, or, or uh, I, yes, in between times, I was at Fulham, and a nice job at Fulham. Chris Coleman invited me to work with him down there, and I was really doing the same thing, a kind of consultancy job there. And one of my main responsibilities was say, recruitment, foreign recruitment. So. We managed to recruit some good players at, uh, at Fulham, and Fulham at that time were in the top half of the Premier League. So I had three good uh, experiences in England. Uh, Fulham at uh, Derby, uh, Preston first, then uh, Fulham and Derby. So, I mean, I, I genuinely, uh, I'm the luckiest guy in football because I've had wonderful experiences with very, very good football clubs. You were linked a few years later in October 2008 with um, a return to Dundee um, in a managerial role. Was that ever close or was that just rumours? No, I, I never heard anything about that. There was, there was a mention uh, about going to Dundee, but I never, Dundee didn't speak to me at all. Uh, and uh, therefore, you know, I've, I really had no knowledge of that. And then an, an emergency, Mullerwell phoned me in an emergency, and uh, I went to Mullerwell. In terms well, of going to Mullerwell, was that out of the blue? Sorry? In terms of going to Mullerwell, was, was that out of the blue? You obviously said it was an emergency that was, there. Uh, yeah, that was out of the blue. I, mean, I was, I, I, I don't know how many times I must have retired. <laughs> when I retired when I finished with Scotland, and I was a young guy then, I was only 62, you know, <laughs> so I retired, <laughs> and I thought that's me finished. And then I got uh, three jobs in England uh, subsequently. And then uh, I finished, I retired uh, down at uh, Derby. And uh, I was happy. I didn't, well, quite bluntly, they wanted, they wanted uh, a change at Derby and they sacked Billy. And Billy took me. So I said, if they sacked Billy, I'm not staying. And I went, and quite, they might have sacked me, but I left because of my loyalty to the guy that took me. And I was, I'm trying to remember what age, I must have been about 66 or 7 And I came back to Scotland happily retired. And then, four years later, I got a call from Monroe. And uh, Monroe was uh, a lot of affection for Monroe because I worked there before. And Mr. Uh, Bill Dickey, who was the president of SFA and UBA, they'd sacked their manager. They had no manager, and they asked me to go 
to hold the fort till they found the manager. And again, the whole staff had got the sack, the backroom staff. So that enabled me to invite my colleague Archie Knox to join me with that model. So we went to model. And uh, we did quite well, in fact, very well at model. Well, as you say, in terms so of you, how, you, went, you went there, so sorry. Craig, so I'm just saying, obviously you said you did well, and you certainly did. You went there, you finished fifth with Mullerwell, um, and you took over from Jim Gannon, and then um, continued on for a second season, which, which started very well, and, and there was obviously then interest from Aberdeen. When Aberdeen were interested in you, was that something you just thought to yourself, you just you couldn't turn down because of the size of the club? Yeah, well, that, that was really it, I think, uh, what, you know, I think if you look at the, the model of the, 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 the smashing website, gives you all the stats about managers, players, everything. But when you look at it, uh, Archie Knox and I at Mullerwell, I think in the Premier League, we've got the best record of any Mullerwell manager now. I think Stephen Robinson might be threatening that now, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, it, it won't worry me. But you know, we had a very good record because Mullerwell had lost, I think, seven games. And they were really toiling and, and they, they couldn't get a result and they had the sack for manager. It was Jim Cannon. And we, we went in just to to take over till they found a manager. But because the results were good and very good, we, had, we, we came up and we got into Europe. And uh, in actual fact, we when we got into Europe, we got to the playoff at Europe. I mean, it wasn't just... Uh, we managed to get, you know, it's not, it's not something I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be critical of, but Aberdeen have had four or five goes at Europe recently. They've never got as far as we got in one go at Motherwell. We got to the playoff and, you know, we had quite stiff opposition in Iceland and in Scandinavia. So we had a very, very good Motherwell team. And I think what, what prompted Aberdeen to come and ask for us was we went up to Aberdeen with a young Mullerwell team and won 3 nothing at, at Petodre with, with Mullerwell. Last night, Mullerwell went up and won one nothing, <laughs> which was they were a bit fortunate last night. But we weren't fortunate to win 3 nothing. We could have won by six that time uh, because, you know, we played them very, very well. So I think Aberdeen were looking for a manager because they were bottom of the league, right at the very bottom, below everyone. And they, they had the sector manager and they were at the bottom and they, we weren't in a contract at Motherwell. So it was easy to leave. If I had signed a contract, I'd never left Motherwell. But we hadn't signed the contract and I didn't go to Aberdeen for any more money. We just went because Archie knew Aberdeen He'd worked with Alec Ferguson and Archie said it's a terrific club, great potential, good city. So, and we were free to go. So, we left Mullerwell and we went to Aberdeen. But I think we're quite proud of what we managed to achieve at Mullerwell. We left them in the semi final of the cup. We left them in a very good uh, league position and we had been in the playoff of Europe, which is quite lucrative because you get more money from UEFA for the ego. So, uh, and we had a lot, uh, introduced one or two good young players there and, you know, we made some good signings at Marvel. So it was all, 
Uh, I've got a very soft spot there for Morrow, and it was all good. And then we went to Aberdeen, and uh, Aberdeen, as I say, were rock bottom of the of the uh, Premier League, and I'd lost. Aberdeen had lost nine nothing to Celtic and five nothing to Hearts, so it tells you what we're going into. <laughs> <laughs> it was not, it was far from a a sinecure. That, that was quite a, a shift to go there, uh, and the, the depression about the city and the place was quite tangible. When you went into Aberdeen, um, you went in in the December of two thousand and ten, and. They were in a rocky position, but you managed to get to the Scottish Cup semi-final that year. Obviously, the club were in danger, maybe. Not saying they would have went down, but they were, they were certainly down there when you went in. You guys kept them up, got to a semi-final. How, were you, how happy were you with that first six months at the club? Well, if I just take the overall my overall experience at Aberdeen, uh, we were in three semi-finals uh, in the time we were there. And unfortunately, we got Celtic in two of them, and Celtic were a very good side at the time. And we lost to Celtic in two, and we were we lost in the semi-final of the cup to Hibs, uh, the, the other semi-final, and the, the winning goal, I think you, everyone would agree, and you see it on, if, if it was VAR, it would never have stood because it was offside, because the corner was offside when the ball was played to him, and he flicked it through to uh, Griffiths, who scored, and Griffiths uh, was on was loan from Wolverhampton to Hibs at the time. And we, so we lost 2-1 to Hibs in the semi-final of the Cup again. So, uh, when Archie and I were at Aberdeen, we uh, we had to save them from relegation, which we did. We Unfortunately, the club was in a financial problem and we had to take money for six players. So in the short time, we had only one full season at Aberdeen. We had part of a season, a full season, part of a season. Now, during that time, in an 18-month period, we got money for six players. We, we sold them well. Two of them were compensation monies. But here are the names, and they were all good players. Aluko went first. Aluko, Chris Maguire went. Uh, Jack Grimmer went. Uh, Fraser Fivey went. Um, Richard uh, Foster went. And the one that broke her heart, who went uh, when we... He was just really beginning to be outstanding with Ryan Fraser. So there's six players. If you just think about the standard that you're losing, Absolutely. and you've no money, you haven't a penny. You're selling them to make money to keep the club afloat because the club was heavily in debt at the time. Until a guy came in when we were finished, a guy came in and cleared the debt. And then there's a new American owners, well, American-based owners, as Dave Cormack, yeah. but. Uh, in our time, it was if it's an offer for a player, the bank is saying you must take it. We need interest money back from you. So if you just when you think about the quality, Aluko was good. Maguire was an international player as well. So was Aluko. He was uh, his country. Uh, then we had the Five. Then we had the Grimmer, who done who's done well in England. Then we had the uh, Foster who went to Birmingham City, uh, Bristol City rather, and Derek. Uh, McInnes signed him and the last one was uh, Lee Fraser uh, then two retired two of our very good players Paul Hartley had to retire he was the captain of the team got an injury couldn't, couldn't keep going had to. and another by Johan Foley French player who was excellent so we 
lost eight players at Aberdeen. It was a, a it was a heavy assignment, a shift to keep Aberdeen respectable, which I think we did now. And uh, the last season we were there, we were in the last game of the season for the top six, and unfortunately we lost at Tannadice. But when I think where we were and no money, and lost eight players. And had no money to bring, to bring in a player. Uh, I think you know we're quite pleased with uh, what we managed to achieve at Aberdeen, because then Derek came in and was a good appointment because Derek he won the won the League Cup. Well, seven of the team in the League Cup were there when he came. Which so we had eight players out of contract when Derek came, which was great. He got a look at them in the, after the split to see what he needed. And uh, the better, the better younger players were still there, so it was a, a smooth transition. And Derek's done exceptionally well. He's kept them up in the top four, and he's uh, won the league cup, which is good. So, no Aberdeen, and, and, and when I retired there, I've never been as indebted to a club as I am to Aberdeen because he said, "Stay as a member of the board." And they kept me. And now, even under the new regime, they've kept me as a club ambassador. So, um, Stuart Mill and his successor, Dave Cormack, have been very kind to me, uh, asking me to stay on. And I hope that uh, I'm contributing uh, enough to make it uh, a right decision on their part. But I certainly, I live in Aberdeen and uh, I've got a great affection for the football club there and for all that's happening with Aberdeen. So, you know, as almost an octogenarian, I've got to admit that, I've got to say to you that there's no luckier guy in the game of football than I am, because I was lucky to survive as a player, although I was unlucky with my knee, very lucky in management, and very lucky since I've finished, because I've been retained uh, on the staff as a director and as a as an ambassador at Aberdeen Football Club. And Aberdeen is a superb uh, establishment of a superb football club. So yeah, I, I am indebted to the people up there and to everyone that I've dealt with in football for the support I've had. And, you know, I get quite emotional when I think how lucky I've managed to be making my hobby my job and uh, thoroughly enjoying every minute of it. Last main question before a wee round of quickfire, Craig, is you've managed Clyde, Scotland under-21s, the Scottish national team, Preston, Motherwell, Aberdeen, and you've been involved with director of football roles, consultancy roles, and now on the board at Aberdeen. You mentioned there, obviously, how lucky you feel to have um, been in the game. Now that you've retired from the front line of the game in terms of management, do you look back with just sheer pride in your career as a whole, and particularly with your time as Scotland manager in hindsight? Yeah, I look back with uh, gratitude. You know, I, I, I'm not ashamed of anything. You know, I, I, I don't want to talk about pride. You know, it's, it's, it sounds a wee bit arrogant. I was brought up, and always my father and my family always uh, this phrase: always underplay your hand, never shout about what you're going to do or what you've done. Uh, it's up to other people to decide, but underplay your hand and I, 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 I'm not trying to be false and modest or anything but I do genuinely think that I've been fortunate and but I think I've made a contribution everywhere I've gone I've made every club I've worked for I've made money for 
you know, and we haven't always won. We won a couple of leagues that uh, I played, but we haven't always won uh, things. But we've always been very, very respectable. We've always, on the financial side, we've always made a profit. Uh, so, you know, from that point of view, I'm pleased. And the crowd's maybe a bit too arrogant, you know. I don't want to be uh, hubristic and get boastful in any way. But people say to me, oh, you're great, you're the last man, you're a legend, all this. Now, <laughs> I don't consider myself that. I think these guys that played for Scotland, you know, that. The, the, the great names of the game, the Dennis Laws uh, and my favourite player, Kenny Dalglish, you know, and uh, these guys, I think they are the real legends of the game. And uh, some manager, like, uh, manager legends like Alex Alec and Jock's team, uh, Shankly, these are, these are the guys that I would never aspire to their standards, but uh, I've been lucky and I've enjoyed it. And I, I don't need to be embarrassed about anything because I can look anyone in the eye that I've worked for or played for and say I gave my best. And, and sometimes it was good, other times it wasn't as good. But uh, I genuinely feel that uh, I have been fortunate. And John Collins gave me a wee bit of French when we went over to France. I said, John, you, you can speak French. Tell me, tell me a phrase when they're interviewing me, the television over here in France. And I'll, I'll always remember that he said, Greek to art or defeat, comport, sell a fate. And translated as, as uh, victory or defeat, the important thing is the fun. <laughs> and I've had great fun. Uh, I've had victory, I've had defeat, but comport, sell a fate, the important thing uh, is, is the fun. And uh, I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. And there's another book written by a guy, Eduardo Galeano. It's called Football and Sun and in Shadow, and it's about football in South America. And his wee, his wee introduction is great. We lost, we won. Either way, we had fun. And I've had fun all my life in football, and even though we've lost sometimes, I still enjoyed it. And uh, therefore, I'm so grateful. Two things. One, to be alive at my age. <laughs> and two, to still be involved in football as an ambassador of Aberdeen Football Club. Um, Craig, as a player, who would you say the best players uh, you played with were? Well, obviously, the, I, I was lucky to play with the, the D team that won the league. And I could, <laughs> you could just about the lot of them. You know, Lenny, Lenny Hamilton, Cox, Steve Hewer and Wishart Smith, Penman, Cousin, Gilzean and Robertson. But... You know, if I had to pick out, you know, I've got to say the the, the, the main men were uh, Ian Ewan and Alan Gilzean, both got transferred to London for big amounts of money, and I played with them. And But at Rangers, I played, and I never played in the first team, but I played in the reserves with Willie Henderson. I played in the reserves with John Gregg. So I had, you know, some good experiences at, uh, at Rangers and Dundee with top international players. So I think I've got to say that the Dundee boys, maybe Golzine was the best player that I've been on the pitch with uh, and he was at Dundee. In terms of the best players you played against? Against, well, oof, uh, I'm just, uh, I need to give me a minute to just work that one out because they were, uh, I, I would say I played, and this is quite a significant game, I played in Bobby Lennox's first game for Celtic. And I played against him, and he, 
autobiography. I, I was told to deal with him. My manager told me to kick him, you know, <laughs> get him sorted. And I couldn't get near him. It was too quick for me. But I managed to get my elbow in his nose. And uh, it was an accident, of course, uh, Callum, <laughs> uh, where I bled his nose and the blood came down the, the hoop jersey for the game. So I would say that, that, that I played against the two famous wingers. I was a left back at Dundee and I played against Jimmy Johnson and I played against Willie Henderson. And both were brilliant. And I would think Johnson was the cleverer player. He, he could, you know, you have to pay to get back in, as they say, when he sends you one way and then the other. <laughs> but Willie Henderson was these lightning. He knocked it past you and ran and he exploded past you with the ball. So, and but maybe the most skillful player I played against. I played a, a, in a friendly match for Dundee against Arsenal. And I played against a guy called George Easton, who played for Arsenal, and he was a famous English player. And uh, we won the league in Scotland, Arsenal won the league in England, and this we uh, friendly, it was at Arsenal at Highbury, and at Dundee, uh, we played, you know, in, in the same season, we played them home and away, and I had to play against Easton, and uh, he was so skillful. And another one that gave me a hard time was a guy at MD United called Dennis Gillespie. So the wingers and the midfield players gave me a hard time. What about the best players in your career that you managed? Well, I always say, people say, who's your favourite player? No, maybe not the best. The favourite player was Tom Boyd because Tom Boyd turned up, I think he played 53 consecutive international. He turned up, he would have a swollen ankle, he'd have a black and blue knee and he said do you want me to play and I'd say yes I need you we're playing against Russia and Kanchelskis is fast you're fast I need you if you need me I'll play you know now, he was uh, hugely talented I was in the dressing room I was the assistant manager when Kenny was still playing Kenny Dalglish now without doubt he's the best Scottish player I've been in the dressing room with uh, and uh, Andy was the manager and Kenny was still playing there but he, only about 100, 102 caps at the time. But it was a great privilege to be in the same dressing room as uh, Kenny Dalglish. And uh, he was the epitome of modesty. You never heard him boasting. And he was apologetic. We made a mistake. Uh, a wonderful example of a professional footballer. And the, the, the record he's got down there in Liverpool and his behaviour at the disaster down there, the way he handled things has been absolutely... Brilliant. A great credit to himself, his family, and to Scottish football, Kenny Douglas. So I would love to have been the manager when Kenny was playing. I'd love to be the manager when Dennis always playing, but I was uh, they were before me. But we had, had a lot of good guys, and they, I think I mentioned them when I was talking to you earlier. You know, the, the Collinses and McAllisters, the Willie Miller and Alec McLeish and the wonderful goalkeeping late and particularly in Gorham. So, you know, I could go on and on right about the players that have been good. Uh, I can't say so many of it. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, they're as good as these guys. And that's an opinion, maybe distance lens enchantment, but uh, I think they're better than the boys now. You mentioned, obviously, their law and Douglish, and this is a big question. You might need a wee bit of time to think about, but if you were to give me your best 11 Scotland players from all time and put them into a team, what would your 11 be? 
I think he would be my captain, David Mackay. Billy Bremner was another one that I don't not mentioned, who was a great captain. Uh, Greg was a great captain. Billy McNeil was a great captain. So if I take of the team that I picked there, I'm going to put McNeil in the team and make him the captain. Uh, or Dave Mackay. Brilliant. Um, who was the best team you faced as a manager, the toughest opponents, in terms of getting into the game that you were most worried about? Well, it should have been uh, the opening game of the World Cup. It should have been Brazil. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, Brazil probably, they had won the World Cup. They were playing the World Champions. So that would be the best team uh, that we played against. Uh, the Brazil 98 team. And, uh, you know, as World Champions, you've got to acknowledge that. We also played the, uh, we played France in a friendly before they won the World Cup, we played them in a friendly. Uh, I'll give you a laugh on that one. They were in, in St. Etienne before we went there. <laughs> and they had, France won the World Cup in 98, and they were a host country. And they didn't have to qualify, so they were looking for easy friendlies, so they invited Scotland. <laughs> so I agreed to go, and provided we get playing in one of the stadiums that we were going to use for the tournament. So they agreed to play us in St. Etienne and pay us a lot of money to go there. So that was accepted by the SFA. So we went, and their team that played us was uh, the team that eventually won the World Cup. And Amy Jackie was the manager, and he was a nervous wreck because he couldn't win a friendly game even at that time. And, of course, I said to them, I was doing the team talk, and I'll never forget, you'll laugh at this one, because I said to them, now, I said to Burley, Burley, if number 10 crosses the halfway line in possession of that ball, and you haven't whacked him, and sorting them out, you'll be in the bench sitting beside me. I'll get you substituted. And he nodded his head. And I said, now he's called Zidane. And I want you to sort him. Well, after five minutes, you've never seen a tackle like it. Burnley half coming to. And I thought, oh, no, no. He's going to get sent off. Well, it was a friendly. So the referee called him over. And I used to say to the boys, be polite if you're getting booked. And, and he says, you were a bit late, number eight. Burnley very polite. He says, I got there as early as I could. <laughs> he says, your name? He says, Craig Burley. And I'm looking to see, is this a red or a yellow? And to our relief, because it was a friendly, I think, he gave him a yellow. And McCoy's a sub, he's in the bench. And he shouts around, hold Burley. One more tackle like that, Paul, you'll be joining your teeth in the dressing room. <laughs> so that was the first, that was the first shout from McCoy, which was good. But then, we got to half time, it was one nothing for the France. And, at half time, I said, look, I said, you get yourself ready, McCoy, because if things are not changed quickly in the second half, you're coming on. So just after half time, one of the best goals Scotland's ever scored was scored by Gordon Jury. And if you look at the, the website for that goal in 1989, 88, sorry, uh, it's an 80, and look, France versus Scotland, look at the goal. Jury's goal is fabulous. From the edge of the box, right into the roof of the net, now I'm taking them off. I've got McCoy warming up. So I said to McCoy, get warmed up before Jury scored. And McCoy, only McCoy could say this to you and you not take offence. I said, get warmed up, Coisty. And he come over to me and says, no before time. <laughs> well, you can't be annoyed because it's McCoy saying it with a smile. So he's warm, while he's warming up, Jury scores. And it's a great goal. And I'm saying, I'm taking that guy off. <laughs> so I'm making a mistake here because when a player has scored, and he's a striker. The next time he shoots, the goal's twice the size. He's on a high. He can't miss the next time. So I shouldn't be taking Burnley off. So 
So while McCoy's warming up, I shouted to him, Coisty, eh, we'll leave it just now. <laughs> just take a seat, we'll leave it just now. And I'll never forget, he says, he shook his head, he stood in front of me, shook his head, he says, Jury, one goal in six years. Prolific, blooming prolific. And I thought that was a great response. <laughs> and he sat down, and we eventually brought him on later, but uh, always... Kier McCoy saying to me, during one goal, six years, prolific. But uh, we, went, we lost the game, uh, I think it was 2-1 or 3-1. But uh, that team probably was as good a team as, uh, as uh, well, they won the World Cup, so that was as good a team as I think we've ever faced when I was the manager, the French international team. Again, I can't argue with that. It's just in terms of the teams you've faced and the way you've detailed there, absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm interested to know, Craig, obviously we talked about the standard of Scotland players in recent years, maybe maybe dwindling to an extent. Obviously with the young generation, um, obviously they've got their Playstations, Xbox, etc. How do we, do you think, bridge the gap in terms of quality between ourselves and other European nations? Well, the first thing we need is a indoor facility, you know, because when you go to Eastern Europe, well, Russia was split into 15 countries, five playing Asia and, and nine plus Russia playing UEFA. When you go to Lithuania, Latvia, Moldova, Georgia, they've all got fabulous indoor facilities. And you go to Norway, and Norway is the same size as Scotland. Every village, every town has a government-funded half-size pitch and it's warm and comfortable for the kids. Now, you mentioned that they've got the iPads and they've got their PlayStation and things like that. There's no there's no weather element involved in that. They can play that indoor and comfort. Now, you're competing with these things now, so you've got to give them far, far better facilities, both outdoor and indoor. And until we start investing more in indoor facilities. We're not going to get the kids playing as much football and as much tennis as the, you know, as Judy Murray wants them to play and as much uh, uh, indoor uh, badminton and basketball and things like that. So, but mainly football, that's where my sport and to get the players as skillful as we think they used to be and to compete with other countries, we've got to give facilities. Never Every town in Norway has a half-size government-funded pitch. And they had, when I went 15 years ago, they had 15 full-size indoor pitches. Now, that's 15 years ago. Now, in Scotland, we've got five at last. Five full-size. Now, that's nothing like enough to entice the kids after school in the evenings to go and enjoy playing football or have a wee game or... Uh, play head and tennis or something like that, get a kick at the ball in comfort without getting soaked and frozen. So it's not an, it's not rocket science, but they've tried all these schemes and you know they've got this uh, project Brave and all these other schemes. What they need to do, in my opinion, is and in, in, in other countries it's government funded. The clubs can't afford to build full size indoor uh, pitches or even half size, but the government could deploy the money and it will help the health of the nation. If the kids are playing rather than sitting on an iPad or a PlayStation, if they're active, 
the health of the nation will improve. There's no doubt about that. And that's one of the reasons the Eastern European countries invest so much. They want credit from their football teams, but they also want a healthy country, healthy nation. So, I mean, you're asking me, it's, that's an oversimplified answer, but to give us more and better facilities and that will result in the coaching is good. There's great coaches going about, no doubt about it, and good enthusiasm, but terrible, shocking facilities. So I think that has to be uh, considered. I would agree with that. And I must say, in terms of your your call for more indoor facilities in a nation like ours with our climate, I think that, that's a no-brainer. I, t- I totally agree. The next one's a kind of personal well, question, well, Craig, and it's something that... So the next one's a kind of personal question, and I'm interested to know this, obviously, as a, as a school teacher. Do, do you see any similarities at all in being a classroom teacher and in management in the sense that you're managing people, albeit at different ages? Yes, it's the same, the same uh, standards. The standards you set, the standards you get, whatever standards you want, you get. Now, uh, I think communication has got to be good if you're a teacher. So communication is important as a manager. Uh, and uh, you've got to have a slight bit of humour, you know, a wee bit of humour as a, as a school teacher too, you know, the, the parents are, you know, <laughs> I, I remember, okay, I could tell you so many stories, human stories from the school context, and I do, if I'm doing an after dinner, I tell them about some of the school things, you know, but, you know, like the parents uh, shouting at me, don't you forget, you're only a public servant, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for us having wins, you wouldn't have a job, you know, things like that, <laughs> uh, uh, and this one said that I, I after I was doing, I was, what, what, what school are you in? Where are you? What part of the country are you? What school are you in? I'm based in Inverclyde in a school called Lady Alice. Where is that? In Inverclyde? Where is that? Uh, just in Greenock. In Greenock. In Greenock? All ah, right. Okay. <laughs> well, you'll need your health down there. <laughs> um, uh, well, it's the same. I, I was in Lanarkshire and Darkest Lanarkshire and Belfield. I remember taking the school team and this mother. Right, they were late coming out and the mothers were waiting on them. And I, I had them in the gym and this mother said, did you find any talent then? And of course, I made a mistake. And I said, they all the talent standing at the school gate. That was all the mothers, you know. <laughs> and, and this mother says, well, get your money out, son. <laughs> I said, I'm only got 50 pence in my tracksuit pocket. She says, all right, son, I'll get change in my purse. So these were the mothers from St. Peter's Primary in Partick. Uh, when I was a student, I was there. But you know, I love the I love the humour. But uh, what was you need facilities. You, need, you see, you've got it at Largs. You know, well, you're handy enough doing it Largs there for for Inver Clyde. But yeah. that's you, you can take every a group readily from Greenock down to Largs. Even no, no. Have you got a decent indoor one in Greenock? Not that I know of. No, in terms of the sports centre, had an indoor five-a-side um, pitch in the local sports centre and they've changed that into spin fit. So, as you say, in terms of indoor facilities in Greenock, it's, you're playing on kind of wooden, wooden basically laminate flooring indoors. Aye. It's pretty rubbish. Aye. I know, it's terrible. I mean, I, I was down at Inverkip there with some, some oh, six or so months ago. Uh, Jerry McDade does, does these things like you're doing. Uh, but it's, it's live, you know. I was down doing a question and answer with Jerry McDade and, uh, and Inverkip and... I mean, the enthusiasm down there is 
Sandy Ritchie, uh, all of them, and you know, and Joe Harper, you know, these are the main men uh, historically. So you'll have heard of that. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I think you'll suffer, like every teacher in Scotland suffers from lack of facilities if it's football or, or PE. And uh, you go to Iceland, they've only got 350,000 people and they've got five full-size indoor pitches. It's a joke here. It's something we need to address and as I've said, hopefully, hopefully it is addressed for the future of the, the country in terms of also, as you've said earlier, as a nation because obviously we're talking about at the moment childhood obesity and things yeah. rising and as you've said, why would modern kids go outside in the pouring rain when they could stay indoors and play their FIFA indoors, you're right. right. We need to challenge it. Yeah, yeah, and they'll learn the game indoors just the same as outside. And they're not prepared to go. The mothers only want them outside, soaked and drenched and filthy. So, I mean, that's where we're. It's, it's not rocket science where we're deficient. We're deficient in the provision of facilities because the coaching provision is good. There are so many great youth coaches and senior coaches, but. The lack of facility hampers them and it hinders the progress of the kids. I totally agree. And the last question I've got for you, Craig, is, is to bring it up to, to the current day um, with Scotland. Obviously, we've got this semi-final with Israel coming up at home and then potentially the final against uh, Norway or Serbia. How positive are you of our chances of qualifying for the first major tournament since you did it yourself back in 1998? Well, I, I, I kept saying, you know, I, I was at five major tournaments. a terrific experience to go to a major tournament. Now, the, I think the portents are good here for this next one because we'll beat Israel at home in the semi-final. And the, without, I'm sure we will. Uh, I've seen Israel home and away. I saw us losing Israel. And I was in Israel watching the game. And I saw us beat them at Hamden. We'll beat them at home for sure. Uh, I don't care. Uh, who's fit and who's not fit you know I was a wee bit concerned that we're losing some of our, our good players but we've enough good players to beat uh, Israel now the big problem is the away game with Norway or Serbia because both these countries are very capable and I would be worried about the final and uh, I have a big pal in there who owns a cafe played for Red Star Belgrade and <laughs> He says, we will beat Scotland, no problem, <laughs> you know. And uh, I watched Serbia play in the last tournament, the World Cup, and they looked very good. Uh, traditionally, Norway always give us a hard time. We might usually manage to beat them in the that time we managed to scrape by, but we, we, it was a difficult uh, fixture. So I'm sure we'll get to But the, the, this final that we're playing is away from home, and... I'm very hope, hopeful that we'll qualify, but I'm not as confident as I would like to be. I'm confident getting past Israel. But the other game, the final game, I know we'll take a big crowd, a big support with us, but I, I'm a bit concerned about the outcome of that one. I'd just like to say, Craig, it's been an absolute honour and pleasure for myself to have the chance to talk to you, someone who's such a high-profile figure in the game, and I just can't thank you enough tonight for your time because this chat has been absolutely fascinating and obviously with you having a teaching link as well 
for me it's been fascinating as a massive football fan and as a fellow teacher as well thank you so much so we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open they'll be filled with song they'll be filled with song we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open they'll be filled with song they'll be filled with song